Amen Church, which remains standing with me as we read Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are, what is, are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies within your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned to you in passing last week, Mark has devoted something in the range of 40% of his entire gospel to the final week of Jesus' life. What this means is that God willing, we will spend the majority of the next year studying these magnificent seven days. Well into the year 2022, we will still be wrestling with these seven days that lay before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that that shows you just the significance, just the weight that God has placed on these events, that Mark has placed on these events, how significant they're meant to be to us, both corporately and individually. I, I cannot wait to see what God is going to do as we march through this timetable, watching the work of his salvation playing out in real time, this thing that he has prepared all of creation for, that he has been moving all of creation towards. I can't wait to walk through it with you. So go ahead and stand back to your feet, please. We've got much to cover in very little time. I will have you into Catholics before you know it. Up, down, up, down. That was a joke. Somebody's going to come to my office this week and say, are we really becoming Catholic? No, we're not. We return to the 11th chapter of Mark's Gospel, beginning in verse 12. This is the Word of God. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Your infinite holiness, your terrifying glory, your justice, your mercy, your wrath, your love. May we see you in your word. In it would you show us ourselves, our filth, our depravity, our wretchedness, our weakness and our rebellion. 
then would you show us our precious Savior. The only one that can make us right with you. The only one that can reconcile us to you. And the one in whom we are a new creation. Something glorious and beautiful and precious to you. Help this book. Make this book. Live to me. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So this day is the 10th of Nisan in the year 30 A.D. You remember that this entire story began with Jesus arriving on Saturday. He arrived in a town called Bethany. It's on the back side of the Mount of Olives, the opposite side from the Temple Mount. Jesus arrived in that town called Bethany. He had two dear friends there, Mary and Martha, along with their brother, the man Jesus had raised from the dead, a man Jesus also loved. His name was Lazarus. It was there that the sisters, they were hosting a supper, and Mary came and anointed Jesus' feet, unbeknownst to her, anointing her Savior for his burial. We then came to the next day, to Sunday, Palm Sunday as we call it. It was on that day when Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead. They went into the town that was just on the other side, the town called Bethphage. It was there that there was a colt, the colt of a donkey that was tied outside, and he sent his disciples, and just as he said it would happen, they went and they found the colt. They told the owners of the colt, the Lord has need of it, but he will return. So they took the colt, they brought it to Jesus. He sat upon it. They didn't have a saddle for him. He didn't have a saddle for himself. And so making a saddle of sorts out of cloaks, he rode along the way. And the people seemed to understand what was happening as Jesus rode in on the back of this colt, this colt on whom nobody had ever ridden. And they were shouting out praises, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were waving palm branches and laying their cloaks on the ground as a show of submission. Then Jesus enters into the town, surveys the temple. It was late. He turns around and returns right back over the Mount of Olives into Bethany. Now, this is the second day. This is Monday the 10th. It's on the following day when he comes from Bethany and he was hungry. So he's returning to the city. Now, the journey is only about two miles from Bethany into Jerusalem. And you're going up over this mountain, the Mount of Olives. But walking at a nice leisurely pace, it would take something like 45 minutes for reasonably fit men like this. And so Jesus, he's walking along the way. And the scripture tells us that he's hungry. Now, Matthew tells us in his gospel that it's morning time, perhaps even before the sun has come up, that Jesus and his men head out on their journey. But it tells us that Jesus was hungry. Now, we know from Scripture that Mary and Martha, they were good hostesses. They would have surely offered breakfast to Jesus and to his disciples. But we're not told why Jesus didn't eat. I'm assuming probably, given the weight of this week and given Jesus' normal pattern, that he had probably been out alone with the Father in prayer. And so he missed breakfast. So as a result of that, he was hungry. We see Jesus' humanity on display here. When men don't eat, they get hungry. When men get hungry, we look for food. So Jesus is looking for food. Verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So apparently nobody had packed anything to eat. So Jesus looks up and he sees a fig tree. Matthew's gospel tells us that the fig tree was sitting out alone by the, uh, by the road. So this wasn't a tree in an orchard. This wasn't a tree on somebody else's property. This was just a fig tree up for grabs, sitting out along the road. And dear friends, I would remind you that God put that tree there. That the God who is sovereign over everything, who was moving all things towards this appointed time, he placed that tree there for this purpose, that his son would pass along on this Monday morning, seeming like an ordinary Monday morning. The crowds aren't there anymore. Jesus and his disciples coming up over the Mount of Olives, they see this tree there by the road, this tree that's in leaf, and he goes over to it. Now, fig trees, they can grow to be pretty big. 
something like 30 feet tall, maybe 20 feet wide, something like this. And it makes them just a great place for shade. You'll remember that in John's gospel, we've not studied that in here, but any of you that have wrestled with John's gospel, the first chapter, you'll remember that when Jesus met Nathaniel, he told him, I saw you. Before Philip called you, I saw you there under that fig tree. I'm imagining that disciple was sitting there looking for some shade. So it tells us that Jesus sees this tree. He maybe would have seen it from as much as a mile away, right, coming down the side of the Mount of Olives. He sees this tree there by the road. This is a pretty ordinary scene, right? Again, the crowds aren't there anymore. There's no palm branches. There's no donkey. There's no cloaks on the road. This is just Jesus and his buddies on an ordinary Monday morning marching into Jerusalem. They're hungry. They see a fig tree. He goes over. He's going to see if there's something there to eat. Then, when he comes to it, he finds nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus gets there, and there's no leaves. Or there's, there's nothing but leaves. There's no fruit there. Mark adds this parenthetical statement. He says that it was not the season for figs. That is, the time hadn't yet come for the harvest. Now, some people, they read this, and they take this to believe. They take this to mean that Jesus didn't understand when the harvest for figs was. That Jesus was ignorant as to the way that fig trees worked and when you were supposed to harvest them. And we know this can't be. Even if we, we put Jesus' omniscience on the side for a moment, and we know there's times that Jesus did that. We know that in his humanity, in his refusal to grasp equality with God, there were plenty of times when, as a boy, Jesus had to grow. He had to grow in wisdom and stature. We know that he had to learn. We know about the woman that came and touched the hem of his garment, the one with the bleeding problem, that he had to turn around and ask, who is it that has touched me? And so we know that Jesus didn't operate in his omniscience at all times. But even putting that to, to the side, you must remember that Jesus and his friends, Jesus and his disciples, they came from the agricultural region. They came from the rural region of Galilee. These guys weren't stupid. They knew about trees. They knew about fruit. They knew about the harvest. They knew that it was late summer and early fall whenever you were supposed to come in and reap the harvest from the figs. Jesus was not ignorant. So there's other people that say, well, then, if Jesus knew this, if Jesus knew that it was late summer and early fall whenever you were supposed to take the fig harvest, that he was being unreasonable to expect that there was going to be any figs there in April. you got to remember, this is the month of Nisan. This means late March, early April, somewhere in there. So Jesus was just being unreasonable then to expect that he was going to go over and find anything on this tree. But what the scripture tells us is that the tree was in leaf. There were leaves all over this tree. And what I found out this week as I studied about fig trees is that the figs, the fruit, they show up. They begin to pop up before the leaves. Now, these wouldn't have been ripened figs. These wouldn't have been figs that were suited to the harvest. These wouldn't have been the most tasty of figs. And yet we're told that by the time you look up in April and you see a tree that's just covered in leaves, you can expect there's going to be something edible there. There's going to be something that Jesus could put into his belly to give him the energy that he needed for this busy and trying day that lay ahead of him. These first ripe figs, that's in part what David was reading about this morning. When he read verse, uh, verse 1 in Micah 7 there, we talked about these first ripe figs. These first figs that have just popped up and they're not all the way there. And yet Jesus could have, he would have expected that he could have picked them from there and eaten something, putting something in his belly for the day. But that's not there. Dear friends, you've got to understand, Jesus was not ignorant. He was not being unreasonable. And while clearly there's a lesson here, there's a lesson in the fig tree way beyond just fruit and figs and harvest and season. This isn't an act. Jesus isn't just play acting here. Jesus truly was hungry. Jesus truly was hungry and he truly did see this tree. It was truly reasonable to expect that this tree would have figs. So he truly went over and inspected this tree and there he didn't find any. He found no figs on this tree. Now there's a phrase that we use here in Texas whenever we talk about a poser. Somebody that's got a big old belt buckle, a big old hat, and has never sat on a, on a horse, what do we call them? All hat and no cattle. 
In the sporting world, you'll use the phrase, when you see a dude that's big and buff and strong and he can't fight his way out of a wet paper bag, you say he's all show and no go. In this instance, Jesus gets over that tree and he finds out it's all leaf and no figs. Not any good. It's big. It's pretty. It's robust. But it's not fulfilling its purpose. There's something defective about it. Perhaps even something diseased about this tree. So as a result, it's not doing the thing that it's created to do. It's not producing figs. Verse 14. So he says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. You better believe his disciples heard it. They were hanging on his every word. But he says to this tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Matthew tells us he not only says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He says, may you never produce any fruit again. What Jesus is doing here, he's uttering a curse over this tree. Now, we confirm that in Mark's gospel. In a couple of weeks, God willing, we'll come to the second day, to the next day, when Jesus and his disciples are passing through. And Paul, or Peter, excuse me, he recognizes, in fact, that Jesus has cursed this tree. This makes people very uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable when I first come to this text. And I think about this, Jesus cursing a tree. We don't see Jesus doing these type of destructive miracles. Jesus is the God who heals. Jesus is the God who helps. Jesus is the God who creates. Jesus is the God that brings life in his miracles. And yet we see him here. He doesn't, even speak, he doesn't even seem to speak to the demons like this in his confrontations. And yet we see him here cursing a fig tree. And so, so many preachers, they'll tie themselves in knots trying to explain away what's happening here. Trying to explain away or to soften the story in some way that doesn't confront us with the reality. But the text says what the text says. Jesus was hungry. He came to the tree. There was no figs. And so he cursed the tree. He cursed the tree. As we'll find in a couple of weeks, this tree began to wither up from the roots up. He cursed it and it was dead by the time they came back through the following morning. So what gives? Some people will say that what's happened here is that these men that will preach all manner of, of heresy, these men that like to preach that this is just evidence that Jesus was not perfect, they'll take this event and what they'll say is you've got this and then you've got the dust up in the temple that comes next, next in Jesus' life, next week in our life. You've got this and then you've got the dust up of the temple. And what this shows is just the pressure of the whole thing is getting to Jesus. He knows that his death is on the horizon. He knows that his time is short. He's anxious for the sake of his disciples. He's anxious for the fate of, Jer of Jerusalem. He's anxious about the laying down of his own life and the wrath that's going to come upon him. And so just as the weight of all this comes upon him, he's just acting with just impulsivity in this moment as he utters these words. And if Jesus could, he would take these words back because now he realizes that he had sinned in acting in this way. Now, if we were dealing with anyone other than the Christ, that would be true. I can assure you, I've punched plenty of trucks, and I've body slammed plenty of lawnmowers, and I have cussed out plenty of inanimate objects. But Jesus knew no sin. He was in absolute and perfect control of his mind and his will and his emotions at every last moment. This wasn't sin. This wasn't impulsivity. This wasn't ignorance. This wasn't unreasonableness. Jesus was in complete control of this entire drama to the very end. Jesus wasn't cracking up under the pressure. So what was he doing then? We know that a tree is not a moral agent. We know that a tree does not have the ability to rebel against its creator. We know that a tree will not answer in eternity for its actions in this life. So surely this tree and Jesus' response to it, surely this points us to something deeper, something further, something beyond it. It's an acted parable. We see these throughout Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament. You'll come to the prophets, and you'll see them acting out these parables, like Ezekiel, writing the name Jerusalem on a brick, and then enacting the siege that will come upon them from Babylon. 
or Jeremiah tying the yoke and walking around himself and walking through the town. These men, knowing under the power of God, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the people are not hearing the word of God. They're not hearing the warnings that he's uttering. They're not changing. They're not turning. And so they take this another step, and they play out before them the siege of Jerusalem, the, the fall of the temple, the Babylonian exile, the, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. They play these things out before these men. Sometimes actions speak louder than words, and so they're playing out before these people's eyes. This is what's coming, and that's what Jesus was doing here. He was acting out a parable before these people, a parable that pointed to something way beyond a fig tree, way beyond some figs, way beyond some, li- some leaves. It pointed to a deeper spiritual truth. That's surely what he was doing. So what does it represent? That's the question. What does the tree represent? What does the curse represent? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that there are a number of times, including this morning's text, but there are a number of times when we find in the Scriptures God's people, the people called Israel referred to as a tree, oftentimes a fig tree. We read that in Jeremiah 8:13, Jeremiah 29:17, Micah 9, 16 through 17. We read about God referring to his people as a fig tree. And very often, more often than not, he refers to them as a fig tree that does not produce figs. A fig tree that doesn't do the thing for which it was created. That's why you make fig trees. He had created these fig trees for the purpose. He had planted these fig trees for the purpose of producing figs. And throughout the Old Testament, he talks about the fact that they hadn't done that. So the meaning of the parable, the meaning of what Jesus was acting out here, it seems to be pretty clear. He was expressing to these people, he was delivering to these people a curse. The king had come and he had presented himself. Again, riding upon the colt of a donkey that no one had ever sat upon. As the people, they seemed to understand what was happening in this moment as Jesus rode in. Remember, Jesus had called people to silence for three years before this point. Jesus had gone to great lengths to make sure that anyone inside of Israel that knew he was the Messiah, that they were called to silence because it was not yet time. They couldn't understand. They had no hope of understanding what it meant for the Messiah to come. And he knew that it wasn't time to lay down his life yet. And that the more they cried out to him as the king of the Jews, the more the, uh, the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel were going to press for his death. And so it wasn't yet time. But now the time had come. He sent a clear signal by the riding in on this donkey in this way. And the people seemed to pick up what he was throwing down. They were waving the palm branches. They were laying the cloaks. They were crying out, Hosanna. All the pomp, all the circumstance, all the signs of submission. Jesus goes in and he surveys the temple. He is coming to inspect the temple, the place that was supposed to represent God's dwelling with the people, their place of sacrifice and service and and submission, the place in which they were to come and to confess their sins, to seek a relationship with God. He came and he inspected this place, and he did not like what he found. So as a result of this, he utters in the curse. On the very next day, he comes riding in. After this inspection, he says, I know what I saw the day before. Now I've come back, and I'm cursing this place. Now we know that this curse... It would come in the fall of the, come in the um, form of the fall of Jerusalem, forty days from this point. Excuse me, forty years from this point, in the year seventy A.D., as the Romans would come in and they would seize Jerusalem and lay low the temple to the point that not one stand was laying upon another. And so it remains to this day. If you were to go to Jerusalem today, what you will find it is only the western wall, that wall that is on the opposite side of the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. It's only that western wall of the Temple Mount where people can get. And you'll find when you go there, Jewish people, as they press their face into this wall and they cry, they moan, they wail. That's where it gets its name, the Wailing Wall. These people that tie their lineage all the way back to Father Abraham and the promises that God has made to them. Because of this curse, there is no longer a temple there. 
because they do not recognize that God dwells no longer in a temple built by human hands, but in his people. Because of this, they go there and they wail and they moan and they cry out and they write little prayers on scraps of papers and they poke it in the cracks of that wall, just hoping that somehow the God of the universe will hear them and heal them and save them. It is the saddest image in all of Jerusalem, probably the saddest image in all the world. These people that God had called to himself, that had so missed who they were meant to be in him, that had so missed the very purpose of his covenant, that now they soak this wall of bricks with their tears, having no clue that salvation has come in the form of Jesus Christ. This is all the result of this curse that fell upon them. Now, this may seem harsh, that Jesus would come one day, he would expect the temple, and then the very next day he would come back and deliver this curse. But you must remember that God has been so very gracious to them. He has been so very patient to them. Firstly, God had no reason to call these people. They were just sinners like all the rest of the earth. There was nothing special. There was nothing beautiful. There was nothing worthy in this people that he would call them to himself in the way that he did. He just looked out over all the sinners in all the world, and he had determined, I will call this people to myself, not because of anything actual or potential in them that made them qualified for this calling. And yet even still, in his calling of them to himself, they continued in their sin, in their rebellion, in their empty religion, in their pomp, in their circumstance, in their outward obedience. It was a detestable thing to him. Their worship became a gong to his ears because they so completely missed the purpose for which he had called them. And yet continually, he was patient with them. He was gracious with them. He was kind with them. He was long-suffering with them. And now the time had come. After he continually sent messages to them, they persecuted his prophets. They rejected his word. And four days from this point, they would kill his son, the one that had come to offer salvation, the one that all creation had been pointing to. God had been more than patient. He had been more than gracious with these people, and they had made their choice. They had made their determination. It would be sealed with the fate of Good Friday. They would make clear to the world, we don't receive you as our king. We don't want this covenant that you bring. We don't want the offer of salvation that you bring. They were showing exactly what had been in their heart. Jesus alluded to this back in Luke's gospel. In Luke 13, we read this, Luke 13, 6 through 9. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, but he found none. So he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. For three years now. How long was Jesus' earthly ministry? For three years now I've come. And I've sought fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? You're not even as good as the ground that you're using up. You're not as good as the oxygen that you breathe because you have not fulfilled the purpose for which I created you. You are not producing figs. And he answered them, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. It says God inspecting this plant, this tree, this God had created Israel. He had called Israel. He had planted Israel by calling them out of slavery, by saving them and calling them to himself. He had planted them in, then, in the most fertile, the most productive place possible. These weren't a starving people. These weren't a dried out people. These weren't a people that didn't have access to everything that they needed. You'll notice that Jesus did not come and expect fruit from Syria or Babylon or Rome. It was these people amongst all the earth that should have produced fruit. What excuse did they have? What excuse could they have possibly had? They had seen God's mighty hand at work in calling them out of salvation. They had seen God's provisional hand in giving them manna from heaven, putting them in this land, a land with things like fig trees, a land of milk and honey, 
He had given them the abundance of his word. These people weren't left alone like the pagans to stare into the sky and wonder, I wonder what the God who created the stars is like. They weren't forced to understand his law by looking only at the inward word that was written upon their consciences. Although, even those people are without excuse. Scripture tells us that even those that are just left with the general revelation of God, even those that are just left to understand what they can understand of God from the mountains and the elephants and the babies and the butterflies and the stars, even those that are just left to know what they can know about God's nature and his justice based on the sense of goodness, right and wrong, that God has written on their heart, even they are without excuse. Even they have rebelled against God and will answer to him in all eternity for their refusal to obey and honor and worship them. But that's not Israel. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the sacrifices. They had the temple. And now the living son of God had come and presented himself to them. It was right and it was good that Jesus came, the king of the Jews, that he came and he presented himself in the city of David, that he came to the temple and he offered to them first salvation. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. They had every last opportunity to produce fruit and they wouldn't. They couldn't. There ever would have been a people that should have produced fruit, it was them. So Jesus arrives, and what he finds instead is a nation full of leaves, ex external indications that there would have been fruit. The magnificent temple, the outward obedience to the law. Again, the sacrifices. You need to understand this was Passover week. In just a few short days, there would be literally hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs that were going to be sacrificed as gallons upon gallons of blood ran out of the temple and down this very valley. Can you imagine the stench? These people had all the signs of religion. They had all this outward facade of holiness. They had all the signs and the symbols, and the world would have looked at them and thought, surely that's a people that know their God. Jesus showed up, and he found a tree full of leaves, full of religion, full of signs. And in the end, he found no fruit. He was the owner. He was the master. He had come to claim for himself that which was his. He had come to offer to these people something that should have been theirs by rightful inheritance, and yet they rejected it because they completely missed the purpose for their existence. They completely missed the very reason that God had called them and brought them into this place. He didn't take them out of Egypt and plant them in Jerusalem, plant them in Israel so they could build for themselves a name. So they could spread out their leaves like the laurel tree of Psalm 37. Look at us. Look at our grandness. Look at how beautiful and magnificent we are. He had sent them there to produce fruit. Do you know what the purpose of fruit is? Trees don't eat their own fruit. The purpose of fruit is for the nourishment of others. The purpose of fruit, when it falls and someone doesn't eat it, is that it dies and it produces more fruit trees. That was a purpose for God planting them in Israel, and they had completely wasted it. Instead, they built a big, beautiful name for themselves. You already know where I'm going. They completely missed it. There was no fruit. And so what Jesus promised them on that day is, and never will there be. Never will there be. The time for repentance is past. My Father has called you here, and he has called you to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He has called you here to the fruit of obedience, true, inward, heartfelt obedience. He has called you to worship and glorify and represent him. And instead, you've made yourself into this thing. And I'm telling you, that's where you're going to remain. What he was doing is he was condemning them to this fruitless state in which he found them on this day. And this wasn't new information to them. 
That was part of the covenant with God. God had said, if you keep this covenant, there will be blessing the likes of which you could never imagine. All the rest of the world is going to be blessed through you. But if you yourself, if you will keep this law, if you will obey and honor and rightly worship me. Again, the standard was not sinless perfection. The standard was repentance and faith, a heart that truly loved God, a heart that turned to him when they found themselves in sin. If they would have done this thing, they would have found blessings, the likes of which they could have never imagined. But if they didn't, there would have been a curse. That wasn't new information. God had had his people stand upon the mountains and recite these curses. Do you understand, you stupid people? There will be a curse if you don't do the thing for which I've created you. There will be a curse if there is no fruit. They said, yeah, well, we really like these leaves, though. They knew this. They had plenty of time. Jesus says, this is how you're going to rely. This is how you're going to remain. They were evidencing. They were evidencing to themselves. They were evidencing to the world. They had evidence to the God of the universe in their fruitlessness that they were not faithful. The tree had not fulfilled its purpose. And we know this. When you see a tree that doesn't do the thing that it's supposed to do, you know that deep down there's a problem. The problem isn't just a lack of fruit. It shows some kind of disease, some kind of disorder, some kind of defection within it. That was the problem here. The problem, again, wasn't the externals. They had plenty of externals. The problem was deep down in the heart of the tree, if there is such a thing. It was in the heart of the tree. That was what was rotten. That was what was driving this entire thing. Jesus had said, you will know a, tru- you'll know a tree by the fruit that it produces. The lack of fruit. You will know a tree by the lack of fruit that comes from it. The problem was that they weren't deep down within their heart. They weren't what they were intended to be. They had rotten hearts, hardened hearts. Hearts which refused to obey and to honor and to worship God the way that they were intended. This would all be confirmed again through the events of Good Friday. They would seal it on Good Friday as they rejected Jesus Christ coming to offer them salvation. And it's what their hearts desired. People talk about freedom of the will, freedom of the will, freedom of the will. This is where freedom of the will leads. Apart from some supernatural working of God, this is where free will leads. To the rejection of God's own son. Even as he presented himself and offered salvation to them. Even as he presented himself and cried out over them, knowing the destruction that was going to come. They didn't want him. They had all the signs of, of religion, of outward obedience. You remember this, this praise and worship scene as Jesus is coming down the mount into Jerusalem. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. They're praying out to God, God, save us. Save us now. Deliver us now. And Jesus says, here I am. Salvation is coming. And they went, not like that. We didn't want him. He said, I've come to save you from yourself and from your sin. I've come to save you from the wrath of God to come. We can't be under God's wrath. We're his people. Look at all our leaves. Look at how big we are. Look at how strong we are. Look at where he's put us. He says, no, I've come to save you from yourself. I've come to save you from your sin. Now, we didn't want that kind of salvation. We wanted the kind of salvation where you tell us how pretty you are and you wipe out everybody else. It's what their heart desired, and you must see this. No one forced them into this. Deep down, this is the kind of tree that they were because this is what their heart most strongly desired. They longed to reject Jesus. They longed to hate Jesus. They longed to kill Jesus. All because of what sprung up from their heart. And yet, it was all happening in accordance with God's perfect and absolute providence. This was the will of these men. The absolute desire of their heart, and yet over and above and superintending this entire thing was the God of the universe that he may bring salvation to you. Had these men not rejected Jesus Christ, had they not been left hardened in their hearts, had they not crucified and then rejected the gospel, it would have never reached your ears. 
There would have never been salvation offered to you. We praise God in his holy name that he would do this. As terrifying as it is, as heartbreaking as it is, despite the fact that Jesus would stand and weep over Jerusalem, saying, oh, that you would come to me. How long have I longed that you would come to me? I don't delight in your destruction. I don't delight in the curse. I don't delight in your death. And yet we know that this was God's plan from before the beginning of time. Paul points to this in Romans 11, verse 25 through 26. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and in this way, all of Israel will be saved. He's saying, I don't want you to be confused about what's happening here. It wasn't that God's his plans and his purposes for Israel failed. He said, okay, now I'm going to plan B. You aren't plan B. You aren't the backup. You aren't the ones that he settled for. He said, before the beginning of time, I will harden my people so that they will reject my son, so that the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the elect, the last of those that I've called to myself, until they come in, and then in that day, Israel will become jealous. You'll see this hardening lifted. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't dare preach Romans 11 now. I don't know when God's going to let me preach through Romans. I pray it's not for a long, long, long time because i got a whole lot I need to figure out before I dare stay in this place and try to present it to you. But what we know, what we can tell clearly from what God has said in his word was this was his plan, that they would be hardened, that, that salvation would come to us through this as a result of this hardening because of what Jesus Christ has done. And then in the end, there will be something, some type of mass conversion, not all of Israel, not all of genetic, not all of biological Israel, but all of the elect, all of those that God has chosen, even from within Israel, they will all be brought into salvation, all in accordance with God's absolute perfect plan. I told you a few weeks ago, there is not one particle of dust that operates outside of God's absolute sovereignty. There is not one heart inside of Israel or in the rest of the world that operates outside of God's absolute sovereignty, and so we need not worry. We need not fear. We need not wonder. We pray to the God of the universe that is sovereign over all. I ask you, what worth is it? What value is there in praying to a God that is not sovereign? I understand. There are some of you in this room this morning, you hate this. You're tired of me saying the word sovereign, 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 sovereign. Well, guess what? I find that word all throughout Scripture. You know what I don't find? Man's self-determination. I don't find that talked about in the Holy Scriptures. I, talk, I find the God of the universe moving all things towards his providential plan. But I ask you, were God not sovereign over everything, what in the world are you be praying to, to him for? Before you go out and you share the gospel, what would you pray to him for? If God is not the God that turns hearts, if God is not the God that calls men to life, if God is not the God that guarantees salvation, then what do you pray to him for? God, I'm going to share the gospel. Please don't touch their heart. Please don't bring them to life because I know you don't do that. So I guess we're just praying for pretty weather. He's sovereign over all of it. We praise his holy name that on this day he had chosen to harden Israel. And yet we see in his heart, we see in his mercy, we see in his love as his son stands upon that mountain and he weeps over Jerusalem. Because he knows what's in their heart and he knows this is what they want. They don't want him. They want this rebellion. Wow, that went longer than it should have. But everybody said amen. Yeah. There's a great warning for us in this as well. Again, just touching back on Paul's letter to the, to the Romans in verse 11. Just, just before this, he says, they, that's Israel, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. 
So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You don't get to be a fruitless tree either. You don't get to not do the thing for which God has called you and created you either. As Jesus stood and he wept over those that were tied to him through bloodlines, those that came through Father Abraham, those that were chosen, those on whom God's promises still stand, do you think then he looks to the Gentiles and says, well, just do whatever you want? You've been grafted in, so you're free to act like a bunch of hootenannies. No. Do not think that if he would cut off the natural branch, he will not cut off you too if you're found to not bear fruit. Don't miss this, church. God has planted you in this place. Again, a place where you are not going dry of all the evidence of who God is. We have his word. You, you're in this church by no coincidence. Why has God brought you in this place? A place where the word of God is preached and taught and lived and loved and prayed and sung and cherished. God planted you in this place. He brought you into this place. You're not starving for the word of God. You're not starving for the evidence. You're not starving for all the calling to you. And then you look around at all the leaves that we have. You're witnessing the leaves right now and the preaching and the singing and the praying and the Bible studies and all of this. The nice churchy lives. Those are the leaves. And they're not bad. There's nothing wrong with the leaves. The problem is when you have leaves and no fruit. The fruit of repentance. The fruit of obedience. The fruit of love. The fruit of patience. The fruit which glorifies God. That's the danger for us, that we become this big, robust, leafy tree, this beautiful tree that basks in our own glory. We've got the promises of God. We are the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We turn up our noses at the rest of the world, then we look up and we go, oh, but we forgot to produce any fruit. The whole purpose for our creation. But man, we know all the big Bible words. That ought to cause you to tremble. It caused you to be terrified. We can get so busy sitting under the shade of our tree going, man, it is nice here. The sun can't get us. But knowing that on that last day when the Lord comes and he inspects us and he finds no fruit, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I'm going to tremble at this. So how do we make sure? How do we make sure that we bear fruit? If it's bearing fruit that matters, if it's the fruit for which, the lack of fruit for which men are finding themselves cursed, and that's, that's what it says. This isn't just a corporate thing, although this is the mass, the, 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 the corporate Israel, although not every last Israelite, and we as a church have a responsibility, but it's, it's individuals. God's brought us here individually. We stand before him individually. Then what do we do? How do we bear fruit? So I'd invite you, turn with me, please, to John 15. I'm almost certain that as I was asking this question about bearing fruit, I'm almost certain that there's at least some portion of you in this room that your minds immediately went to John 15. Your minds immediately went to this picture. This is some of Jesus' teaching there on that night of his betrayal, and, and there's some beautiful pictures that John has captured there for us. And, and I imagine that's because he was closest to Jesus, and of course because he was the last of the gospel writers, and so he captures for us these words. So John 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So this is kind of similar language here. And Jesus is immediately telling us who's who, right? Jesus is saying, I, that is Christ, Jesus, he is the vine. His Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not fulfill its purpose. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he's going to take away. Now, immediately, there's going to be some people 
man, I don't have time for this. We're going to do it anyway. That immediately, there's going to be people that see this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. And they're going to go, well, what is, wait, 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 what? Are there branches in Jesus that are truly connected with Jesus, like true believers that don't bear fruit, and so God cuts them off and takes them away? No, 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 you cannot lose your salvation. He's talking about, he's talking about the hanger-oners. He's talking about the dudes that hang around. He's talking about the posers. He's talking about the people that bear all these leaves and don't ever bear any fruit. He's talking about the people that have all the outward appearance that they're truly in Christ, but they never were. He's talking about the people that go out from us because they were never really of us. That's what he's talking about here. But he's saying those, those, they're going to be taken away by my father, the vine dresser, the gardener, the pruner. We go on, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So again, he's identifying for us this type of people. These branches, these branches that don't bear fruit, they're taken away. Guess what happens when a branch isn't tied to the vine, to the trunk, to the life-giving organism any longer? They wither up. We pruned a bunch of stuff at the house the other day. It's still kind of green. We can't burn it yet. So we cut it off. We took it away. We put it in a pile. Guess what's going to happen in a couple of weeks? It's going to get brown. It's going to be good for nothing but burning, and it's going to burn hot. Says, I will take you away. You will wither. You will die. You will become dry, and you will be good for nothing but the fires of hell. Those that do not bear fruit. Again, these posers, these people that are hanger-oners, these people that are just kind of around. This was Israel. It's just so many that call themselves Christian today. So many that build a name for themselves. So many that have outward appearance. So many that come and sing pretty worship songs. So many that can recite scripture. So many that serve in churches. So many that preach sermons. So many, so many that call themselves Christian, yet they don't produce anything. They're just hanger-oners. And oftentimes it requires a tug to figure that out. Any of you that have ever been walking through the woods or something, you'll see a limb and it looks like it's there. You're not real sure. You pull on it. It was never attached in the first place. It was never a part of it. That's the kind of people he's talking about here. They fail to bear fruit. Again, these aren't real believers, but there's another kind of branch mentioned there. You see that. He says in verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit. I would show you there's only two kinds of branches, right? There's branches that don't bear fruit, and there's branches that do bear fruit. The branches that don't, they're all going into the fire. They will all wither away, and they're all thrown into the fire. But there are those that do bear fruit. These aren't the fruitless branches. These aren't the ones that are fitted for for the fires of hell. These are the ones that bear fruit. And what does he say? Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying those branches that bear fruit, they bear it because they abide in Christ. He'll say a little bit later, by this, I may know that you, or the world may know that you are my disciples. The true disciples are those that abide in Christ. Those that abide in Christ, those are the ones that are going to bear fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. That's the answer. That's the answer. You're sitting here and you're going, okay, how do I bear fruit? How do I make sure I'm not withered away? How do I make sure I'm not playing church? How do I make sure I'm not just leafy? How do I make sure I'm not thrown into the fire in the end? You must bear fruit. How do I bear fruit? You must abide in Christ. That's your answer. That's your only hope. Abide in Christ. And that truly sums it up. But I know what's happening now, right? Many of you, you're sitting here and you're going, okay, okay, I want to know why do I exist? What's the very purpose for my existence? And he says in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and show yourself to be my disciples. He's saying the evidence 
that you are my disciples, that you bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory. Your purpose for existing is to glorify my Father. So you're sitting here and you're going, good. I don't want to go to the fires of hell. I want to glorify God. I want to bear much fruit. I tell you to abide in Christ. And you say, thanks for nothing. What does that even mean? That's the most churchy answer in the history of churchy answers. Abide in Christ. Well, good, thanks. You've told me nothing. So I guess I'm just going to hell because I don't know what that means and I don't know how to do it. And you're wanting me to give you some steps, right? Give me the ten steps for being a fruitful tree. Give me the five steps for abiding in Christ. Just show me what to do so I can do it. Dear friends, that's the problem. Abiding in Christ means being connected to Christ. It means being attached to Christ. It means remaining in Christ. And you can't do it. Guess where we're back to? The sovereignty of God. You can't do it. That's the whole hit. That's the whole point. That's the whole secret. You don't know the secret of Christianity? You can't do it. Look at Psalm 1. Reread this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So again, there's two men. There's only two types of men here. There's the chaff. You know what the chaff is? It's the trash. It's the stuff the wind blows away. It's good for nothing but fire why do we keep coming back to fire i wonder they're not good for anything but fire and yet there are these other this other plant this tree this tree that is by the stream of water how did it get there it was planted guess what trees don't plant themselves this tree didn't just grow up there because he was in a christian family this tree didn't just grow up here because it seemed good to him this tree didn't pack up from another park and move himself by this water he was planted there he was moved there he was brought there that's a tough thing. You ever moved a tree? I haven't, but I bet it's hard. I bet it's disruptive to the soil. I bet it's disruptive to the tree. And yet that's exactly what it's saying here, that he is planted there. He is brought there by the stream of living water. It's from that place that he bears fruit. He couldn't have bore fruit anywhere else. He had to be in this stream. He had to be in Christ. He had to be connected to the vine. That's something that has to happen outside of you. You can't do it. Now, from our perspective, we do it all. That's exactly what it feels like. You hear the gospel for the hundredth or the first time. I don't know. You hear it from an ordinary dude, your mom, your dad, your pastor, your friend, your neighbor, whatever it is. They share the gospel. Maybe they've been sharing the gospel all your life. But in one moment, all of a sudden, Jesus is delightful. You're cherishing him more than anything else. You want to be connected to him. You want to bear fruit. You want to glorify God. Your leaves seem like nothing. You'd be happier being a little Charlie Brown Christmas tree drooped over with all kinds of fruit on you than being a big, strong laurel tree with all your leaves hanging off of you. You don't care about the leaves anymore. You want the fruit. You want to glorify God. You want to abide in him. You're terrified of hell. All of a sudden, it seems like it's just something that you did. It seems like it's something that you decided. And yet what you know is it's got to be God's work. He's picked you up and he's planted you. He's taken you and he's attached you. That's the work that he does. This is what happens with the tree. This is what happens with the vine. That's why Jesus goes on in John 15, verse 16, to say this. You didn't choose me. Did I just go deaf? Maybe I just went deaf. Verse 16, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. You didn't choose me, I chose you. We go out there and we preach. Whoever will may come. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that a shell game? Nope, it's true. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved, would you? You do it. 
and you will be saved. There's no one that calls on the name of the Lord. There's nobody that repents. There's nobody that comes to him and he went, not you. You call on the name of the Lord and you're saved. And yet at the same time you get there and he says, guess what? You didn't choose me. I chose you. I planted you in this place. It's the working of the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about the vine dresser, the one that prunes. He it is that bears fruit. My father will prune him that they'll bear more. So you see the triune God all working together in this glorious thing. If the Holy Spirit takes you and he plants you, he buries you, he attaches you, he causes you to grow roots right here in the living water, in Jesus Christ, connected to him. You get your life through Jesus Christ, your everything through Jesus Christ. You're bearing fruit through Jesus Christ, all the working of God. While the Father, he comes and he prunes you, he says, because guess what? The more fruit you bear, the more it is to my glory. I've got a great interest in your fruit. So I'm going to uh, prune you. Guess what? Pruning hurts. Pruning is cutting away. Pruning can sometimes be violent. It's tests, it's trials, it's suffering. And yet for those of us that would submit to this, those that look and say, yes, I adore this, I delight in this, I cherish this, I want this, he will prune you and you will bear more fruit than you could ever imagine. You'll notice in verse 3 in John 15, what he says is, you are already clean. What he's doing is he's pruning you into what you already are. He's making you into the thing that you have already become. He says, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. I stand in this place and I confess my sins all the time. I know this. I beat up myself all the times. I know this. It makes people uncomfortable. And there's a reality to that. I ought to be careful because I am talking about a new creation. I am talking about one that is in Christ. I am talking about a fruit-bearing tree. I see some evidence of fruit in my life. I hope that others do, but I don't really care because it's an audience of one. But the reality is, right, that when we see this fruit, when we see this evidence, that's how we know that we're in him. And we know that he's making us in to this thing that we already are. I can't help but think about the picture of Mr. Miyagi teaching Daniel's son how to work on the bonsai tree. What does he tell him? Daniel's like, how do I know if I'm doing it right? He said, you see a picture in your head? Make the tree look like your picture. In Jesus Christ, we are this new creation. We are already cleansed. That's what Jesus said to Peter on the, uh, at the night of the Last Supper when he's washing their feet. He says, well, you're going to wash my feet, Jesus. I'm going to wash yours. He says, no, 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 no. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. He says, well, good, then give me a whole bath. He says, no, you're already clean. In Jesus Christ, you've already been washed clean. You're already fitted for heaven. No longer fitted for the fires of hell. You're fitted for heaven. And yet throughout this life, he's going to continue to prune you and use you for the sake of others, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of making other disciples. And yet at the same time, there is this call, abide in me. That is a command. The reality is, it's a command, abide in me. So what does that mean? What does that look like? It appears to me like if he's saying to abide means to just be, to be connected, to remain, to stay attached. This is all the working of God. Then to abide is to resist any temptation to do anything in my own ability. To abide means to rest in him completely while I fight like hell to keep everything else away. Knowing that the demons of hell, they are coming against me and all they want me to do is to feel strong and big and mighty and powerful and like I got this thing under control. Thank you, Jesus. I needed that Sunday school stuff before. Now take the training wheels off. I got it from here. That to abide in Jesus Christ means to fight and claw and scratch knowing that we are at war. Knowing that we are at war and it's not like other wars where the enemy puts on a different uniform and comes marching down the field and says, I'm going to come get you. No, he's a sneaky one. He wants you to feel big and strong and powerful and content and able in your own abilities. Or he wants you to feel like you could never be used to the king so that you're willing to just walk away and say, oh, there's going to never be any fruit coming out of me. He wants one of these two things. He wants you to do anything other than to abide in Jesus Christ. And so he calls to us to abide. What does abiding mean? It means I refuse to follow after the God of self. It means I refuse to do anything other than live in absolute desperation for my intimate relationship with you because I know that to walk away from you is nothing but death. So that when Jesus Christ comes and he says, I am doing this work, I am doing this work, and this work is guaranteed to happen, now cling to me. That's the power of his word because you are his sheep and you hear his voice. 
He enables you. He calls you and then enables you to do the thing that he has called you to do. And what this is going to look like in your life is you're going to get up and you're going to walk out of this place. Some of you are moved in this moment. Some of you aren't. Some of you are counting the time right now on your watch going, when is this dude going to shut up so I can go take a selfie with mom and drink some coffee and sit in my Sunday school class. I get that. But there are some of you that are moved in this moment. You feel the working of the Holy Spirit. You feel the weight. You feel the, the... the working of God as he is molding you, as he is pruning you, as he is sanctifying you, as he is changing you. And then the minute you hit this door, this is going to all feel like a joke. You're going to forget that when you leave this place and you go out there, you are stepping into a battlefield and the enemy wants to destroy you. And the way that he wants to destroy you is by making you think you can run on your own two legs. So you abide in Christ as a constant, a consistent coming to him and falling on our knees before him. Jesus goes on to talk about whatever you ask in my Father's way, it will be given to you if you abide in me and my word abides in you. There's this connection about being in his word. If this really is a war, if we really are on the battlefield, we need to constantly stay connected to him. We need to constantly hear his word. We should be desperate to hear a word from our Father. And so we cling to this like it's everything. Dear friends, you don't know how I know that so many people don't believe that they're actually at war because they have no desire for this word. Because it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It was written 2,000 years ago in Greek. You don't think it's going to be hard? But this is a word of life. So you cling to this word like it's everything because you know that the further you get away from this word, the bigger and badder you feel. Because the more I stand in this word, the tinier I feel. The more I stand in this word, the more I stand in the ferocious light of Jesus Christ, the tinier I feel and the more desperate I feel and the more long I feel to cling to him and to abide in him and to run to him. And the more time I spend on my knees in prayer praying out to him, what am I praying for? More fruit. That's his will, more fruit. So the more I'm praying, God, use me for the sake of your glory. Use me to produce more fruit. The more time I spend on my knees, the more time I spend in this word, the tinier I feel and the easier it is for me to abide in him and to cling in him and to hold to him, all the while knowing that it's really he that holds on to me. That's a record for a lot of words. Dear friends, this is everything. This is everything. This is so different than what you've been told. This whole life is just, just a point, right? The salvation is just a point. It's just a thing you did, and then you're done. That's not what Jesus Christ tells us. He tells us, you come to me. You desire to connect your life to, with me. You desire to be found in me. You must know that this is going to be a dogfight every second of every day of your entire life, but the battle is guaranteed. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the glory of your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. And yet, Father, we recognize that we have a very real enemy that wants to do everything in his ability to drag us away, to confuse us, to frustrate us, or even worse than that, to cause us to believe we can walk in our own power. So, Father, we pray that you would humble us now you would drive us to our knees in desperation. Father, we know that it's only those that abide to the end, only those that endure to the end, only those that stay connected to Christ. They will truly see your face in that last day, and we want to be among those. So, Father, reveal any, reveal any self-deception that is within us. Use us now to your glory. Father, we love you. We trust you, and we thank you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.